welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we are wrapping up Abinadi's story. I've said before that relative to his impact, his story arc is tiny. It's not overstating it to say that Abinadi is one of, if not the theological fountainhead for the Nephite religion until Jesus comes. I wish we knew more about him. I wish we knew where he went in the two years from when we first come to know him and when he's arrested and put on trial. Where did he learn the scriptures? Was he one of Zenith's priests? Why did he have such an affinity for the words of Jacob? Was he a descendant of Jacob? Perhaps even the brother of Amalekai, mentioned at the end of the book of Omni, or his nephew? Since he's a Zenithite, we can assume that he had experience in battles with the Lamanites. How did his experience with violence shape him? Did he have a family? How old was he? The answer to even one of these questions might change the way we read his words. But Mormon, always the intentional author, has other plans for us. However much we want to focus on the figure of Abinadi in the book of Mosiah, Mormon won't let us. He's the forerunner. He's the John the Baptist crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. But instead of the Lord himself, He's clearing the path for a brand new type of Nephite community, what the Book of Mormon calls a church. When the time comes, we'll talk about why a church so familiar to us in our day was so revolutionary among the Nephites. But we can't get too far ahead of Mormon. He's a wise guide, and we should trust him. So let's get into chapter 17. Mormon gives us no record of any response from the priests or Noah to Abinadi's interpretation. In fact, the only thing that we get is that the king commanded that the priests should take him and cause that he should be put to death. Once again, we are left to guess as to the type of leader Noah was. But I tend to favor the interpretation that I've put forward before, that he's much more concerned with wine and women than prophecy or governing. That might explain why he doesn't appear to give a second thought to Abinadi's warning that whatever happens to Abinadi will be a type and a shadow of what will happen to the king and his priests. Immediately, we get introduced to a new character who, it turns out, has been there the whole time. If we return to our effort to imagine what this might look like in film, this was the young, fresh-faced priest who caught our eye early on. This is how Mormon introduces him. But there was one among them whose name was Alma, he also being a descendant of Nephi. And he was a young man, and he believed the words which Abinadi had spoken, for he knew concerning the iniquity which Abinadi had testified against them. Therefore he began to plead with the king that he would not be angry with Abinadi, but suffer that he might depart in peace. Bold move, kid. We have to wonder if Alma had any sense of what he was doing here. Mormon calls him a young man, but he was old enough to be among the priests. We'll assume that he's about 20 years old. He's young enough to still be a fresh face on the court, perhaps the son of an influential ally of Noah or one of his priests, but old enough to quickly become a leader. We may be too quick to make this comparison again and again, but I see a parallel to a young Joseph Smith here, having the realization that the religion of his day just isn't getting it done. 
getting knowledge from heaven in the form of a messenger and responding to that knowledge earnestly, only to get rejected by the religious authorities that he has looked to throughout his young life. Noah's reaction to Alma is revealing. He's not the type of leader to consider dissenting opinions. Mormon tells us that the king was more wroth and caused that Alma should be cast out from among them and sent his servants after him that they might slay him. Alma is able to escape and immediately records Abinadi's words. This means that Alma is very likely the source of the words that we've been reading. Moving on to verses 5 through 20, Abinadi is taken, bound, and thrown into prison for three days. During that time, Noah is counseling with his priests, apparently on how to best justify executing him. They finally decide on their approach. Thou hast said that God himself should come down among the children of men, and now, for this cause, thou shalt be put to death, unless thou wilt recall all the words in which thou hast spoken evil concerning me and my people. That doesn't quite make sense, does it? It sounds like the accusation is one of blasphemy against God, which merits execution. But the way he can get out of it is that he takes back the words that he's spoken against the king and his people. Wouldn't it make sense that if there was a way out of blasphemy, it would be to take back that blasphemy? Noah can't even stay on script long enough to sentence Abinadi to death. Obviously, Abinadi isn't going to retract his words, and we shouldn't expect that Noah and his priests want him to. He's a problem, and they want that problem to go away. And similar to those who think that they can just get rid of Jesus by simply killing him, that's the power of the state, Abinadi warns them that killing him won't actually accomplish what they hope it will. I will not recall my words, he says, and they shall stand as a testimony against you. And if ye slay me, ye will shed innocent blood, also punishable by death, by the way. And this shall also stand as a testimony against you at the last day. Not only will killing Abinadi make him a martyr in the judgment of those who hear or read his words, which is now in the tens of millions across many centuries, but there's the even bigger witness in front of the heavenly judge. That's a big difference between the power of the state and the prophetic power that we've witnessed from Abinadi. The state thinks that problems can be managed away. But every time it tries to manage prophetic power, it just adds fuel to the fire. Noah's kingdom will have an end, and its legacy will be one of corruption and oppression. That's a far cry from the kingdom of Isaiah 52 that they imagined they've established. Here we get some supporting evidence to how we've described King Noah. Mormon says that King Noah was about to release Abinadi, for he feared his words, for he feared that the judgments of God would come upon him. Noah's not a true believer. He's not a force of personality that is ready to defend his rule in any substantive way. He wasn't a part of the interrogation, and the only responses that we've seen from him are, this guy's crazy, take him away and kill him, and his own fear for his well-being. But the priests, the real power brokers in the room, aren't as easily intimidated. We learn the priests lifted up their voices against him and began to accuse him, saying, he has reviled against the king. Therefore the king was stirred up in anger against him, and he delivered him up that he might be slain. The king is fickle, but the priests are lethal, and they've got a pretty good read on Abinadi. This guy is ready to die. He's not just going to go away, and they've already seen one of their own swayed by his words. 
How would it look if, having been arrested for opposing the king in a very public way, he's set free? Wouldn't that lend credibility to him? If they let Abinadi go, who knows how long it will be until he actually has followers. Also, notice what the priests do. They don't remind Noah of Abinadi's alleged blasphemy against God. They remind him of his words against the king. That's pretty revealing stuff. Abinadi is put to death by fire. Our modern editions say they took him and bound him and scourged his skin with faggots even unto death. That probably should read that they scorched his skin, since the next line is, and now when the flames began to scorch him. Though some scholars think that scourged is actually the right reading. Scourging involves whipping, which means that Abinadi may have been poked, prodded, and whipped with bundles of burning sticks until dead. I can't imagine the pain of being burned alive. It's supposed to be one of the most painful deaths, right up there with crucifixion. I may be wrong, but I think that this is the first time we have record of somebody being burned as a form of execution in the Book of Mormon. It won't be the last, though. As he's being burned, Abinadi prophesies, Even as ye have done unto me, so shall it come to pass that thy seed shall cause that many shall suffer the pains that I do suffer even the pains of death by fire, and this because they believe in the salvation of the Lord their God. This is an additional prophecy that we've never heard before. It has to do with the fate of the children of the priests, and their fate, it turns out, will be similar to that of their fathers. Now that doesn't seem fair. Don't we believe that we are punished for our own sins and not for the sins of our parents? Yes, but that isn't what Abinadi is talking about here. The children of the priests, who will later be known as the Amulonites, after their leader, will end up joining the Lamanites and will be some of the primary aggressors against the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, or the people of Ammon. You may remember that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are Lamanites who make a covenant of non-violence after being converted by the sons of Mosiah. These Amulonites will begin to hunt down believers, and like their fathers, put them to death by fire. Eventually, the Amulonites are hunted by both the Nephites and the Lamanites and are virtually wiped out. Mostly, Mormon just lets his narrative do the teaching. He's a skilled enough storyteller that the lessons emerge naturally for the readers, but occasionally he'll break out of storytelling mode, look us in the eye, and give us his interpretation of things. He does just that when talking about the fulfillment of Abedinai's last prophecy regarding the Amulonites. And thus we can plainly discern that after a people have been once enlightened by the Spirit of God and have had great knowledge of things pertaining to righteousness, and then have fallen away into sin and transgression, they become more hardened, and thus their state becomes worse than though they had never known these things. Abinadi's final prophecy and Mormon's interpretation of its fulfillment reveals something about the way cultures take on a life of their own. We have a tendency of thinking of agency in terms of the individual. If I sin, it's my individual choice, and to a certain extent, that's true. Abinadi and Alma are both examples of people who exercise their agency to break from their culture and community. So individual agency does exist. And doesn't that mean that other individuals could have followed? Absolutely, and some do. But cultures have a sort of agency too. Or more properly put, there's a sort of active momentum that can, if we aren't careful, sweep us up. In fact, we should probably assume that we have been swept up in some form or fashion in our own cultures. Think about things like racism. 
Is it most useful to think about racism in terms of individuals who actively form prejudices? I'm just not sure that that's how it works. It's clear that individuals operate within positions, interests, and values of their community, for better or for worse. Sure, we have agency, and we can, to some extent, break from those cultural moorings, but when we make choices, we generally choose from the available options presented to us, and cultures go a long way in determining what those available options are. The children of Noah's priests didn't just happen to be terrible people. It's also very unlikely that they just happened to choose to execute believers in the same way that their fathers chose to execute Abinadi. These are inherited prejudices, and if we apply Mormon's interpretation, the longer these multi-generational trends of wickedness go on, the stronger they become until the state of those trapped by them becomes worse than if they never knew righteousness. Why would that be? It could be that it's assumed that most cultures and people have a general sense of right and wrong, but once there's an incentive to reject that sense of humanity, the community then needs to move the goalposts, so to speak, in order to justify their wickedness. This can take all kinds of forms, but it often involves scapegoating a vulnerable minority to create a stronger sense of in-group unity. Mormon makes note that the Amulonites, or at least what's left of them, are hunted to this day, that is, his day, by the Lamanites. That's a remarkable statement. Whatever Amulonites survived, their break from the Nephites and then the Lamanites, the result of this strong sense of in-group identity was so complete that it lasted for 500 years at least. That's a stark example of how cultures taking a life of their own can cause generation after generation to repeat and reenact wickedness. Abinadi's story ends with this description. And now when Abinadi had said these words, he fell, having suffered death by fire. Yea, having been put to death because he would not deny the commandments of God, having sealed the truth of his words by his death. The truth of Abinadi's words were indeed sealed, and we will refer back to them again and again as prophets continue to look to Abinadi. Perhaps he had a sense that the young priest who heard his words would do something spectacular. Maybe not. But ultimately, his hope was in Christ and in the liberating work that he would accomplish through his atonement. Sometimes the scriptures talk about obtaining a sufficient hope. For Abinadi, his hope was sufficient to stand as a witness. We may never be faced with choices as difficult as these, but Abinadi's story can still serve to remind us that a sufficient hope can transform seemingly hopeless efforts into transformative forces for good. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Thank you.